I don't mean that all the weaknesses are with women, because uh, for better for worse shows the uh, disfigurement uh, of a man in, in battle during the war, and uh, a woman finding uh, this handsome young man that she had married just before he left with his face completely disfigured as he returns. And uh, why change your wife? It was the story of uh, a woman who wanted to run the whole show. And uh, don't change your husband was the story of a man who had some annoying habits. But they were all tremendously successful. They brought about such stars as B.B. Daniels. She made her first appearance in uh, Male and Female. Took her from, I think, one of the Hal Roach comedies. Yeah, she was with Harold Lloyd. And uh, those pictures developed uh, some very, very good star material, but they changed the whole course, I think, of the film uh, trend because they suddenly thought that domestic situations were just as important as the cattle trail, and they went that away, and uh, <laughs> one more step and I fire. That, uh, the little things that you do over the breakfast table and uh, how you tell your wife good night and so forth can have just as much effect on on a family and on a human story as how quick you can draw a gun. <laughs> the first Ten Commandments and The King of Kings both were filmed during a period famous for gin, jazz, and gasoline. It took courage to launch these great religious productions so counter to the general trend of the time. Would you comment in general, sir, about these productions and tell us, if you can, how you sensed that audiences were unconsciously eager for them? Well, if you want me to talk about the King of Kings and the Ten Commandments, uh, you've got to get a new kind of a machine that has more tape than this one has. <laughs> because the King of Kings has been a steady topic of conversation for 2,000 years, and nobody has yet done it justice. And the Ten Commandments has been uh, uh, interpreted one way or another for 3,000 years, and still people don't keep them. There are three pictures that must go together when you speak of these two, you've got to add the sign of the cross because they make a trilogy. The Ten Commandments is the giving of the law, the King of Kings is the interpretation of the law, and the sign of the cross is the preservation of the law. Those are the three really important films in my career that uh, have had most effect upon the world. There have been times all through history that the souls of people have, have asked for guidance and help. And we struggle to get out of the morass into which human nature keeps constantly plunging itself. And then some great soul comes along and drags it up and shows it the light again, gets it first on its knees and then on its feet, or first on its feet and then on its knees. You can interpret that either way. And uh, 
it crawls along until finally everything is well and it goes successful and then out comes again the gin, jazz and gasoline that you speak of and it starts on the way down, it forgets the Ten Commandments, it forgets the interpretation of the Ten Commandments and it doesn't see why there should have been any preservation of them. But these three pictures go on and on and on. They never stop. The King of Kings has been seen by over 800 million people. It has never missed a day's playing since we released it. The Ten Commandments, since that was silent also, I have just finished again, as you know, in sound, and there is no question that it will be seen by more people than any picture that the world has ever had, even the King of Kings, because of its new technique and so forth. The sign of the cross has never missed playing since we started. It's never stopped. Those three pictures, because people can cling to them, they show the way out. Those who have a spark of, of the soul left in them, a soul that knows that there is a God, that there is today, as in all the ages past, if you read history and the Bible, there is always the great group who are trying to destroy the belief in God, who say it is the opiate of the people and it is this and that and the other thing, going all the way back. You'll find it all through the Old Testament. They always slept and slept and slept every time they were pulled out. Well, that today, that is stronger than ever because you've got half the world having accepted or had forced upon them a belief, a religion, a political way of being, a social state that denies God, denies the existence of God or anything spiritual, that man is the property of the state. That is their whole belief. These pictures all show that man is a free soul under God and not the property of the state. That has been the great battle since Moses and Pharaoh started fighting it, and it is the greatest battle today since Russia and the United States are continuing the battle. Russia, the United States, and all the allies. Incidentally, it may be, may be extraneous here, but I take no profit from either the Ten Commandments or the King of Kings because of those two subjects. I, uh, all the money that comes from those pictures to, to me or to Mrs. DeMille goes into a trust fund for religious, charitable, and educational purposes. We take no personal profit from them at all. And I might say that Jeremiah Milbank, who uh, financed the King of Kings for me, because it's very difficult to get financing for pictures of this type, for some strange reason, but it is. But Jeremiah Milbank financed the King of Kings for me in 1927, 26 and 27. And when he saw the effect that the picture had upon the peoples of the world, all over the world, he would not even take his original cost back, his original investment. So I have great respect for the men who have helped us with this, Paramount with the Ten Commandments and the 
and Milbank with the with the King of Kings, Raphael and Michelangelo and all those early artists had to have patrons. And you almost have to do the same thing now today, because art hasn't changed much. If you can't sell it at the five and ten, they don't think it's any good today. But these pictures have will have played to more money than any pictures in the world. But the King of Kings we show free to anybody that wants to see it. Ten Commandments is, is a very high price because the negative alone cost thirteen and a half million dollars to make. The Paramount has to do a gross of over twenty-four million dollars to break even on the picture. Well, that takes a great deal of courage and uh, they should have proper credit for that and be entitled as a business concern to make money from it. But I may add there that it is not what a picture costs that makes any difference, but what it's worth makes a great deal of difference. Many of us realized, Mr. DeMille, when sound films arrived, that you were using sound with an advanced sense of its possibilities. In dynamite, the tapping of the hammers building the prison scaffolding was blood-curdling. Would you remark a little about your studies into the capacities of sound and your employment of sound devices? Well, it was such a joy to have that sense added to sight for the creating of motion picture. That, uh, the industry immediately made a, a terrible mistake by throwing away all silent technique, just dumping it out the window. Ever let everybody go, let everything, and rush to the stage and brought out stage crews and so forth. But I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The uh, Dynamite was the first sound picture that I had to make. And when I went on the set to start shooting, everybody was so that in a crouched position, ready to spring. <laughs> and uh, the camera was put in a glass room. Two or three men could be in it. And you had to photograph from that glass room, through the big glass wall. You could not pan the camera. You could not move the camera. You rehearsed the first act of a play, because everybody rushed to New York and bought plays. You rehearsed the first act of a play all the way through, and then you turned the camera all the way through the first act. Everything that the silent screen had done to bring entertainment and uh, the beauty of which we described earlier, the beauty of action, was gone. And you were back on the stage where you had to paint things. The whole period was lost. It was about to be wiped out. And I said, no, take the camera out and put it on the stairs. And they said, well, you can't take the camera out of this room because it makes so much noise you can't shoot. Well, I said, well, you take it out and put it on the stairs, or I will take it out and put it on the stairs. So it was taken out and put on the stairs. And uh, the sound engineer walked off the set. I sent to the property room for a pair of bed blankets. And I wrapped the bed blankets around the camera. And I asked the sound engineer if he'd come back and listen. So he said, well, I will, but it's no good. 
So he came back and listened, and he said, well, I can hear you couldn't shoot because I can still hear the camera. I said, could you hear it as loud as you did before I put the blankets on? He said, no. I said, to the property man, go and get me two more bed blankets from the property room. And he did, and we wrapped the camera up in that and turned it again, and I said to the sound man, can you hear it? He said, well, I can still hear it, but it isn't nearly as loud. So I sent the property man back to the property room to get me two bed quilts. And we tied the bed quilts around the camera. And uh, we turned it with difficulty, and the cameraman said, I don't hear it. It's all right. Well, everything was fine, except you couldn't get at the camera to turn it or focus it or uh, load it or anything else. But you couldn't hear it. Well, uh, Douglas Shearer at uh, MGM, who was a sound engineer, the head sound engineer, I'd heard that there was a wild man on stage five, and uh, he had come to watch. Incidentally, I was talking to him about this last week. And uh, he said, I, I have your idea, Mr. DeVille, and if you will postpone production for one week, I can give you what you want. And we did, and he came around with the first blimp, which is a large box in which you put the camera the mechanism can be gotten at, and the box is lined with bed blankets. And that's how the technique of silent pictures came back into sound pictures. And you could move the camera, you could pan it, you could do all the things you could do with the silent thing. You could put it on booms or push it around any way you wanted to. I think perhaps my first contribution of any value to, to sound pictures. But uh, the values are the saved by the by retaining the silent techniques or combining the silent techniques with the sound are, are such great great value that the moment you put the sound with it you are back to the stage all that the stage could give you the whole technique of the stage was at your disposal plus being able to paint on the broad canvases of of the silent screen. And I brought those two together, and that perhaps is what dynamite did for the world. In 1931, you remade The Squaw Man for the second time. Which of the three is your favorite version, and why? Well, each one of them has something that's different about it. But I would say that the first two are the best. The first, because it was the first feature-length picture made from a great drama. The second is the best picture, because the technique had advanced to such a point, though it was still silent, that uh, we could tell the story so much better, and the photography was better, the movement was better, every, everything technically about it was better, and the performances were better, we had good actors instead of the beginners. Of course, Dustin Farnham was good at the beginning, but they, they, you used anybody for the small part. You picked them up uh, the, as you were long. Carpenters would play the part. Uh, anybody. Now, the third one uh, is not good because it suffered from uh, weakness that the director doesn't generally show, but he showed in this picture. He allowed the tempo to, to become too slow. Even though a wonderful cast like Bickford playing Cash Hawkins and Warner Baxter playing Jim, 
Lupe Valles giving the best of the three performances as a score. So each one of the three has has certain values, but uh, none of the three are my are my favorites. During the Depression years in America, Cleopatra emerged as a gorgeous panorama of the Egyptian past, while the sign of the cross and the Crusades brought new inspiration to audiences. The Plainsman and Union Pacific examined phases of our great country's history. But one film in this ten-year period has been spoken of as the most offbeat you ever made. I refer to this day and age. Was this an early study of juvenile delinquency, and would you comment in general about it, sir? Well, it was one of the most important pictures that I made because gangsterism was at its height. And uh, this day and age showed that the youth of America are different. They are not juvenile delinquents. The youth of America are sound, decent, and fine. They have a sense of fair play and justice. And uh, most of the majority of young Americans are like that. The juvenile delinquency comes out of something else. There have been plenty written on it without my adding to it here. It is a very serious fault, but it is not a new one at all. There have been juvenile delinquents ever since Billy the Kid and going back before that. The roving packs are not new either, because you had them in Paris in the 15th century, you had them in London, you've had them all through history. The roving pack for one historic reason or another, such as hunger or the plague in Paris that causes uh, strange thoughts and strange expressions of thoughts to come into the mind of youth. One of the big successes in New York is a musical play on the subject of juvenile delinquency, in which it's uh, more or less uh, almost glorified. To me, it's a very unfortunate thing and shows a grave weakness in our schools, in our educational system. We are not giving the proper attention to it because those things can spread. But the mass of American youth is as sound as I show them in this day and age. Since 1940, Mr. DeMille, you've spaced your productions at two and three year intervals. Was this the result of a search for the right story, or did you feel that each film required more careful and elaborate preparation than in the past? Well, movies, and I put that in quotes, movies, I thought for a long time that they were doomed that uh, motion picture drama, I knew that would remain, and it'll remain as long as there are theaters to exhibit it, because the public will always respond to good stories. Now, it takes time to write good stories. How many big successful plays do you have in New York in a season? If you get three, you're very lucky. And if you get one in London, Paris, Berlin, Brussels, Moscow, Tokyo, Vienna, Rome. If you get, what, half a dozen out of the world in a year, you can't sit down and just grind a mill and stories fall out. That's the way we used to do with the old <laughs> movies. 
Those were movies. Television has become the movies, and motion pictures have become the legitimate theater. That's why I take more time. I, I will not make a picture now until I have a story that I think is worth making. At uh, the age of 77, I perhaps haven't got too many left, so I have to choose pretty carefully. Would you list for us the group of films, Mr. DeMille, which through the years you feel represent your powers as a, as a director at their height? Well, every honest director finds something that he doesn't like in every picture that he's made. And generally something that he likes in every bad picture that he's made. But I'll give you a suggestion here like asking a mother of 70 children which child she likes the best. But I would say Joan the Woman, which is Joan of Arc, The Cheat, Male and Female, The Whispering Chorus, The First Ten Commandments, Forbidden Fruit, which has the story of Cinderella in it, and a set and costumes all of glass in the Cinderella sequence. The King of Kings, which we have discussed, Dynamite, The Plainsman, Union Pacific, Reap the Wild Wind, Samson and Delilah, The Greatest Show on Earth, and The Ten Commandments. The last three, incidentally, have broken the paramount record of attendance consecutively, Samson and Delilah, the Greatest Show on Earth and the Ten Commandments are the three top pictures of Paramount. Through the years, you've brought many kinds of stories to the screen, Mr. DeMille, and yet underlying them all, I would suspect that there were basic principles reiterated every time. Would you comment on this, sir? Now, I believe the screen is the greatest influence upon this age. It's the greatest medium for conveying thought from one mind to another mind. And where one reaches so many minds throughout the world, it seems a pity not to convey good thoughts rather than spread evil. Where do you make a picture, Mr. DeMille? Do you make it in your office, so to speak, or on the set? Well, a picture has made a success. Now, I'm speaking for myself. I'm not saying how other directors work. A picture is made a success over the desk here. It is a success or a failure when I walk out on the set and start the first day shooting. I can help it a little, I can hurt it a little, but I cannot change what I have written, which is the story. If it is a good story, people will come to see it. If it is not a good story, people will not come to see it. Many of us have been greatly impressed, Mr. DeMille, by the universality of your religious films. Would you comment a little about this? Well, perhaps uh, the best comment I could give you is not one of mine. It was written in a little poem about the turn of the century. It goes, At the Muezzin's call to prayer, the kneeling faithful thronged the square. While from Pushkara's lofty height, a dark priest chanted Brahma's might. 
Amid the monastery's weeds, an old Franciscan told his beads, while to the synagogue there came a Jew to praise Jehovah's name. The one great God looked down and smiled, and counted each his loving child. For Muslim, Brahmin, Christian, Jew had reached him through the gods they knew. Is there anything that you'd like to say in summing up this remarkable interview, Mr. DeMille? Nothing except this is Cecil B. DeMille saying goodbye to you from Hollywood. Thank you so much, Mr. DeMille, for giving your time so generously to making this excellent tape.